Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. So welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Mosier here, as was mentioned in the intro as always. Welcome. This is actually our 19th episode. We're very excited about getting deep into these. So appreciate the feedback we are getting from others out there and the growing following with these. So by all means, continue to let us know how we're doing, possible themes. Love all the feedback. Uh, Today's podcast is part of the Experience Matters series, among the other ones that we do. In this episode in particular, we are honored to be joined by a gentleman named Lee Rodriguez. Lee is a senior instructional designer at Sunrun, which you'll hear a whole lot more about in in just a bit when he gives us his background. But more importantly, friends, for this particular podcast, Lee is a recent graduate of the Five Moments of Need Designer Certificate Program. He did a stellar job in that program. It is very exciting for us to see these new emerging leaders and developers come through this space doing just such good work, which a big part of our conversation will be today. So we are very fortunate to have you here today to talk to us about your journey so far. So welcome, Lee. Great to be here, Bob. Excellent. So appreciate that. So friend, let's get into this. Give us a bit of your background so folks kind of understand the perspective of how you sort of got to this place uh, in your career. I got into learning and development in 1998 when I was finishing up my time in the army. I had been using a weird kind of Unix system that most people today wouldn't even recognize what it is. Just boring (laughs) green screen. I learned how to use it. I was deployed to a place called Bosnia back Mm. in the 90s. And believe it or not, it was a big gigantic tool to allow you to send emails to each other over FM radio. Wow. At the time, email didn't really exist, so this was a new thing. It was pretty cool, and we came back from being deployed, and they had to train a bunch of new people on it, and I kind of knew how to use it. I worked with someone else, and that was my first time being a trainer, developing content and delivering content, and thought that was kind of cool. Fast forward a couple years, I ended up getting a master's degree from San Francisco State in 2007 in education. I already had a bachelor's in communication, so I loved speaking and presenting and all that, and education technology kind of presented a way to take my technical background of mm. computers and stuff and communication and kind of merge those together. And after that, I graduated right in time for the financial crisis, <laughs> which was perfect time to be looking for a job in instructional design yeah, as the entire yeah. economy is collapsing. So that was really good timing. Um, After a bit of learning, I worked for Apple as a genius and created training and did training for them, uh, a little bit of instructional design with them. And then I took a job with uh, YouTube Hmm. and I had been working for Apple as a Final Cut Pro instructor, a certified Final Cut Pro instructor. So I was teaching iMovie, how to make your little camcorder videos, cut out the unhappy stuff. And that led to teaching Final Cut Pro classes in front of 50 people. The highest level person wants to do cool rolling edits, and the first one wants to find out how to get pictures off of their phone. Yeah. So it ranged across the audience, to say the least. I ended up working for YouTube because they needed to create about 96 instructional videos in about eight weeks. 
find out what we're doing and why we're doing. Yeah, there so, you go, my friend. Yeah, we, we have had similar journeys, right? The, it's, it's, I love the very background. And by the way, so appreciate your service, really. It means an awful lot to me and my family and, and those listening. Thanks so much for, for that part of your past. And, and, and you, like many of us, kind of stumbled your way in here, although I, I absolutely love the journey to uh, San Diego State. I knew Ellison Rossett or know Ellison Rossett very, very well and, and love the work coming out of there. I love that you're steeped in both. I think that's why you're as wonderful at it as you are. You've got that rich world background of being in front of folks who need to perform. You're schooled in the methodologies or the trade, so to speak. How did you find your way to the five moments? Were you seeking it out? Was it something that you stumbled on? How'd that timing work out for you? Well, I have, I've presented at DevLearn about three times and I've presented on screencasting and quick video production with a very dear friend, Sam Rogers. Mm -hmm. He's a great guy. And to mix it up, uh, last year I went to ISPI uh. in New Orleans <laughs> and I wanted to try something a little different. And plus yep. New Orleans sounded a whole lot more fun than Las Vegas for the 16th time. So tried to mix it up. And on the second day, I saw a presentation from Susan Fisher called Transforming E-Learning into E-Performance. <laughs> Just an hour on the schedule, one little thing, you know, sit down in a room for an hour. But I sat in that session and she showed how she had built an e-learning course in Storyline. <laughs> and then she flipped it inside out to make it performance support, to make it searchable. So instead of navigating it, where you start here, finish here, end here with a knowledge check that you all yawn your way through because it's compliance at its worst, right? Mm. She had flipped it inside out and said the search bar was the primary part and it was broken into the supporting knowledge you would need and everything around it was designed around the performer, not the learner. Mm. And Love I'll that. say that again, the performer not the learner. And that kind of broke my brain a little bit. Going, Wait a minute here. This is really what we need to be doing as a profession. Yeah. And it was really awesome as she went through this. And how I got into it was after that presentation of all the stuff I saw. But as for the conference, I was still thinking about how she had built this and how she designed it, how it looked. And I'd taken some pictures of some of the demos she was doing in Storyline. And I downloaded her presentation and I followed up with her later. And then I tried something. I thought, how hard can this really be? I see the end result. I know storyline inside and out. So what I'm going to do is this new course I'm building, I'm going to build it just like she did. And it looked great. I flipped it around, did the same thing, kind of moved the content around. And then I realized somewhere between the content <laughs> and delivering the course was a very big piece that was missing. Mm. And that was how this needs analysis, which I would later learn is called the rapid workflow analysis, mm -hmm. which is the center of it is mapping out the workflow. And needless to say, I was like, wow, I've mapped out workflows, but that's not what she's doing here. She's doing something much more complex. So it's one of those moments where you try to create something based on what you see, mm -hmm. but you don't know the mushy part in the middle. <laughs> you know what I love about that, Lee, too, is that so often people who find their way into that course or, or, or candidly just into the methodology in general is that the pivot on methodology versus technology is so important here in that journey for all of us. It really is, as you learned as an ID, behind good instruction of whatever kind is the methodology that drives it. And we're, we're fighting this battle, my friend, right now in the industry. We're swimming uphill against this, you know, Bob Kennedy, we've done this before, needs analysis, workflow analysis, it's all analysis, potato, potato. Can you help our folks understand, because clearly it was an epiphany for you, why does the five moments of need for you work? Why does it just seem to be a different approach from that journey of what you just thought you'd replicate so easily, frankly, to, to where you are today? 
Well, one, Carol Stroud and the teachers um, for my Five Moments of Need certification were just wonderful. <laughs> you know, getting up early, I get up, I, I'm on the West Coast, so all these calls were from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. So mm-hmm. I was getting up early, but I was excited to get on these because they were showing me things that I kind of intuitively knew, but they would break it apart into smaller pieces mm. and you could kind of see on a bite-sized level how this was different. Mm. And as they went through the rapid workflow analysis, what dawned on me, I think most instructional designers will relate to this. Right as you're completing the course, you've been working on it, you've been developing through this content, moving it around. Of course, your um, your stakeholders handed you 14 binders full of content <laughs> and every single bit of it must be in the course because they have to quote unquote know it all mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's always how it goes and there's no way for the instructional designer to really defend against that because you're not the expert but you do your best to try to limit the content or maybe come up with some click read kind of ways of embedding all this stuff and then of course they want all of that content in the knowledge check so now we have a 150 question knowledge check which by the way none of that has affected performance <laughs> none of it zero you know you're supposed to eat right do you you know you're not supposed to speed do you you know you're supposed to listen, do you? Mm. So it doesn't really matter if you know it. That really is, is irrelevant. How it changed for me is through this rapid workflow analysis, you realize what most instructional designers realize on the last week or two of building a course. You finally start to realize how all these things fit together. Mm. And that's when you start trimming content, getting a flow, deciding how you're going to organize it. Maybe we're going to trim this video into two different videos. And you start to see how it's coming together. And often through the reviews of the course, you find yourself saying, I would have built this a little differently. And I don't <laughs> now. now I have no time to rebuild it. So here we go. And that's how it always happened. Right towards the end, you finally start to feel the flow. You see how it comes together and it's all working. Well, what five moments of need does is through the rapid workflow analysis, I'll be honest, when I built my first project, I skipped some of the workflow analysis mapping stuff because I wasn't really sure how it applied. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's, you know, it's probably not that important to completely map the workflow that way. I have enough of it. I tried to build a prototype. And as I tried to put the details in, it all fell apart. And what that reminds me of is I teach a lot of video production. I taught Final Cut. I teach Premiere. And I teach everyone the same thing. If you try to build a video without an outline or a script, it will go just fine until you try to edit it. And once you try to edit it, won't know what idea comes first, what comes together, because you didn't map it out, and you will run into the hell of flipping clips back and forth and back and forth, moving around because you're not sure what belongs where. So if you didn't map it out. So as I tried to skip again without doing the homework first, I realized (laughs) that the workflow map wasn't working so well, kind of stopped, went back to the beginning and followed the instructions that were provided, and I did the rapid workflow analysis as prescribed. And then I built this workflow map according to the way they wanted it done. I had made a much simpler version of it, but when I made it according to the assignment, I struggled for about three and a half hours, got mad, gave my computer a couple words that it deserved, walked away, Came back about three hours later, the map was done in about 15 minutes, and then the entire course, the performance support, how this content linked together was right in front of me on a spreadsheet and a simple InDesign thing I had created. And it dawned on me, huh, if the course is actually, if the training content we're working on is actually a workflow, then this really illuminates how they connect, how they work, what happens, what does what. Really big deal if they're actually a workflow. Mm. And what's great is if you think it's a workflow and you try to make the workflow map and complete the rapid workflow analysis, it'll blow up about midway through. When you realize this isn't a workflow, this is a whole bunch of nice to have information that kind of fits in different places. But what Five Moments of Need does is it very clearly delineates the difference between content 
the content that you're working with and the supporting knowledge. So you have the process or the task that you're working on and the information that you must quote unquote know mm. in order to do it. And they are not the same thing. That was the big shattering thing that all this background information, if you can't specifically map it to a process or a task or a way in which the performer is working, it might be nice to know. The two most powerful things that I get from Carol, of course, your wonderful instructor, and then, of course, Dr. Gafferson, the, the grand poobah of this entire thing, is, is I've journeyed in them. Making the workflow visible is radical in our space. And, and that whole pivot on know versus do. And I, I've been in ID for 36 years. You sat in, th in front of thousands of SMEs, you know, subject matter experts who told me, to your very point, all that everyone had to know and how dare I skip and, and have to include. And know is so much more important than do. you got to know before they can and all this kind of stuff. And Leah, and hearing you go through that journey and, and come to that awareness, particularly through the way in which you kind of plowed through it, was particularly stunning. We, we hear a lot when we try to help IDs journey there. And I, the reason why I so enjoy this podcast, Candle, is, is if you listen to earlier ones, we had Sue Reber on here a bit ago. And Sue is, my gosh, I would say 15 years into her journey. Um, and so to hear her talk about that is different. So Lee, here, here's the challenge in this entire journey for folks, because we work with your more traditional ISDs, and that's wonderful. They're, they're steeped in Addy, obviously know the acronym. It's a real mind shift for them to do this thing. So what did you find the most challenging having come from a well-schooled background, years of experience? What was the big uh, shift for you in jumping between these two approaches? Well, two things. One, I was steeped in Addy too when I graduated from San Francisco State University. That was what they taught us all in. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working at YouTube, I worked with Sam Rogers. And of course, the successive approximation model mm -hmm. is something we joked about endlessly because his name is Sam. So it was really funny. <laughs> and we were using that a lot because, you know, you use Addy to do your initial assessment. But we use a little mix-up mode where you go straight into prototyping earlier on. You know, I know I hear this from, you know, some of the old school instructional designers, and I just, you know, agree to disagree that you can spend an awful lot of time in the Addy model building a design document and coming up with all these great facts and details to build a design document. And sometimes the project, the content, the thing you're working on is a moving target. Mm -hmm. And before you finish with that document, it's changed <laughs> and you rewrite the document. And when you're working in a place like YouTube or Sunrun, where, you know, in Sunrun, the solar laws are changing, policies are changing, the market's changing. The successive approximation model or a rapid prototyping model allows you to put something together a little quicker and you can get it in front of subject matter experts. Hmm. So that's great, but it still is missing something. Hmm. And what five moments of need has done for me that changes it is you do so much of the design work in the front end while you're yes. doing the rapid workflow analysis. Yes. And Sam and I have a technique we've used in the past, and that is when you're trying to build something and, you, and you've got a good prototype coming together, upload it to the LMS <laughs> right off the bat <laughs> and make sure it's actually going to work. Because sometimes you find out it's not going to work the day before launch and you have a problem with Captivate or an issue with a SCORM file or whatever the, whatever the problem is you're going to have. You're going to have it late at night trying to get this thing to upload. Yep. Well, if you, if you find that problem early on, you can solve it early on. So what Five Moments of Need does is it surfaces a whole bunch of questions that are going to be complicated to answer later right up front. You're confronted with it. How do these two things work together? This is out of the workflow. It's a different tool. How does that work? Well, you're going to find it out sometimes while you're producing the content, mm -hmm. while you're doing a screencast, you go, Whoa, wait a minute, 
you're jumping to a different tool here. This is a different login. This is a different everything. It's not yep. a part of the same workflow. You will find that out when you rapid workflow analysis right up front. When you start mapping the workflow, you have this little problem. As you start to draw it, it's confusing. Yeah, well, if you can't draw the map now, what makes you think that's going to get any easier three months <laughs> into this project? Yep, absolutely. Have you seen an effect? I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I know you're early in this journey, so to speak. Have you seen an early effect on, we've talked about yourself, clearly, in, in your mind shifts change here, but what about your organization you support? Have they seen a different thing? Do they feel a different thing? Do they recognize your work differently at all? A couple different things have happened. One, some of the projects we work on weren't focused as much as workflow. Mm -hmm. It was more about they need to know this. Yep. And by saying, got it, okay, let's uh, make a cool introductory video for all the stuff that they need to know. And you've already said that video has to be beneath five minutes, which means we can't stuff it full of all the stuff that you think needs to be in there. So we're probably going to have to strip some stuff out. Can we all agree that nobody wants to – it's like sitting down to a YouTube video. You go to hit play on a video, and it says playtime one hour. It's like, mm. nope, not right now. It's not. X that out. And something that we've always said is a course or a video has two speeds, good and off. There's nothing in between. So around here, what's been really, really, really helpful is when I map this rapid workflow out early on, we're having a different conversation yeah. about all the stuff that has to be in there. Yep. We're having a conversation about the performer. Mm -hmm. And what it does for me is I build the performance support tool first. <laughs> and, and there's a reason for that. Of all the things that everyone needs to know to do this, they're all attached to the workflow. At, at each point, they map across to it. But whether it's a minor detail or something that could result in something catastrophic happening, they all end up in the performance support, but not everything will end up in the e-learning. I'll say that again. Only the really big ones that cause problems or can get you sued or get you fired or cause physical harm to someone, cause lots of loss of money or trust or brand damage or something like that, that needs to go in the training. But all the other stuff that you need to know could easily be searchable in an FAQ. So when I build the FAQ first, guess how easy it is to build the rest of the training when you've already surfaced all this, found it, <laughs> hunted it all down, and put it all in one place. You're literally copying and pasting because now you've found it all, and then you can vet it all in like a Google Doc format. Sometimes what happens is you're vetting all this stuff a week before it launches. Yep. You're finding out this stuff's wrong. It's inaccurate. This is old information. And as a matter of fact, the person you just interviewed and flew out there and put on camera Everything they told you is totally factually incorrect, and you can't mm. use any of it. So guess mm. what? That was a good $10,000. We can't use any of the video we just got. You don't have that problem when you map it all out up front. Mm. So I think it makes design easier, and it allows for you to hack together a simple course using something like Articulate Rise to make sure it's in there or a simple PowerPoint deck. And you can kind of, hey, are we all agreeing on all of this? Yeah. And the best part is when you show the document, you see a bunch of puzzled faces. That means you don't understand the workflow either. Yep. Now you're seeing it all in one place. You didn't understand it, and now we'll do better. I was just speaking to a large uh, L&D team in my area a week or so ago, and, and the, during the Q&A at the end, they said, well, you know what, Bob, this is all terrific. We get it. We nodded and smiled through the whole thing, and, and we agree in principle, but here's our problem. We don't have time. We are just so mired and so overwhelmed with the training demand we have. And I said, okay, listen, then my bad. You, know, you didn't really hear what I said. Because to your point, my friend, and then I showed them a fully built EPSS, fully built performance support on leadership. And I said, look, if you had this tool first, how different would your training be? And the very first thing that they said was, well, it'd be less. One guy said, I don't know, we might, might not even do training at all. There's the rub. You know, there's the pivot. Because and to your very point, when you build for that apply first, like you said, the organization's ability to see the need for 
if at all, training, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers here, changes dramatically. So my friends, a lot of newbies are out there listening. We get a lot of folks on this podcast series who are not taking the course. They just found us. What advice would you give to the developer sitting there who's got to make this mind shift change from training to performance? Because it's not easy. What advice would you give them in that journey? Kind of back to what you were, you just mentioned about showing that performance support tool early. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a quote from my father, Bill Rodriguez, who always says, there's never time to do it right, but there's always time to do it twice. <laughs> Love that. Love that. You build something that doesn't really solve the problem and you rush into it. Yeah. And what you're end up doing is building that thing two times. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're going to build it. And there's no real mapping of the workflow, how it goes, which means we can now get lost in the sauce and making sure we are using the exact words we thought we were going to use. Yeah. Great. Let's fight over semantics on this website. That's what we should really be doing right now is fighting over two, two or two, um, because that really matters because it really affects the performer, whether you use the right word or not. But we haven't mapped the workflow. And we don't really know what the problem was to begin with because we skipped the needs analysis because we, quote unquote, don't have time. So our needs analysis was we emailed two people who actually responded to email, and now we're going to run with it. Or you spent four months on the needs analysis, and you never uncovered any information that's useful. So what do you do? You copy the old training. Yep. You make something just like what they had before. And believe it or not, you can take death by PowerPoint, Hmm. and you can translate that to beautiful video production in Adobe Premiere with beautiful transitions, and we can add after effects, and we can do all this cool stuff. You still have no idea if you're teaching them what they need to know. Brilliant. Love it. So, hey, friend, got to wrap this up, unfortunately. Love to go on forever here. But let's end with this. What has been the, the ahas for you? Um, one of the big ones was mapping the tasks to the moment of need and the execution of the process. Looking mm-hmm. at all the tasks that people are going to do, map it to the actual moment when they're going to be performing. And what happens is you shake a whole bunch of unnecessary stuff off. That's just supporting information that you need in a very specific corner case, but not every learner needs to sit through and see three slides on it. You need Mm -hmm. it when you need it, when you're trying to actually apply, but do we need three slides and voiceover and four animations for something that's gonna happen one out of 1000 cases? Probably not. And the other one that I think, if anyone can take anything away from this, if you map the workflow and map the tasks early on doing the rapid workflow analysis, Most of the work you need to do for the build was done at the needs assessment stage. Mm. Now you're in assembly and creation and development and testing and finding out the best method, the media, the way you're going to deliver it. Is it going to be an ILT? Is it going to be e-learning? All those are great questions to answer, but you've figured out the workflow. You've answered the question. You've done some analysis on on the learners. And if you've done it right, you've had a couple meetings with the stakeholders and they've vetted some of this. You then have their buy-in. Because they were in the meeting and they talked about it. And when they say, well, this other thing's important, it's like, yeah, it's so important. It didn't make it into the spreadsheet four times we talked about it. And now we're adding it. So I agree it is important. It's going to be an additional resource at the end of the training or we'll put it in the EPSS. But we certainly are not going to add five slides of content to something that didn't even make it into our first five meetings. Brilliant. Hey, my friend, thank you so much. Just so impressed with your passion, your enthusiasm for this. And, and, and as I said earlier, we've been so impressed with your work. would love to hook up again in a couple of months or so to kind of see where you are further down the journey. But for now, for the people listening, we can't thank you enough for your experience, your passion, and your ability to help people better understand this journey for somebody who's starting out like yourself. So thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Bob. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. 
we welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.